Welcome to Harrison Church. We hope you're enjoying Pastor Shane's new series on the book of Revelation. This week, we travel into part three of Making Sense of Revelation. Um, Are you ready to, to get apocalyptic again? All right, here we go. So uh, if you're visiting with us, uh, you've come to the right place, I hope. Uh, we, are about ha- we are halfway now uh, through a study that we've been doing on the letter of Revelation. And uh, last week, if you were here, we, we talked about uh, and we listened to a sampling of the messages that Jesus, through the mouth of John, spoke to, uh, we, we only heard four of the messages, but there were actually seven that Jesus, his messages that he was speaking to seven churches located in seven cities in what now is uh, modern-day Turkey. And uh, it's good to remind ourselves as we get deeper and deeper, the letter of Revelation really is a letter of resistance. And uh, by resistance, what John means by this is resistance to kind of the Roman imperial system, the Roman imperial ideology and uh, this is throughout. And, and, and what Jesus last week conveyed to these seven churches of which we only heard four was conquer. I need you to conquer. In other words, I need you to keep the faith. Maintain your loyalty to me. It's going to be hard to do. Uh, it may cause you some pain. It may cause you some suffering. It might even actually cost you even more uh, than that. Uh, and so the rest of the letter, which we're getting ready to get into now, the rest of the letter of Revelation serves for those churches, for those Christians, and we're going to put ourselves in their place, the rest of the letter really serves two purposes, to encourage and to warn. Now, it encourages, and we're actually going to look at the first scene of encouragement, it encourages the Christians first by offering, if you've ever read it, man, offering all of these magnificent scenes of worship, or you were just around the throne of God, and it's just it's beautiful. We're going to look at one of those scenes today, and that's exactly how John begins, really, uh, the bulk of the book uh, that comes following. So that's the encouragement part, but Revelation also serves as a warning to these same Christians. With all these scenes of judgment, bowls of wrath and dragons and beasts and horns, we will look at that next week. That'll be a lot of fun. Uh, But what John is actually saying with all of these wild images is really this to the Christians. He's saying, look, Christian friends, brothers and sisters in the church, if you will keep the faith, if you will maintain your loyalty to Jesus Christ, if you will maintain your allegiance to his way of life, you will be counted worthy to worship with the saints in glory. That will be yours. But if you compromise, if you accommodate, if you want a little bit of Roman ideology, mixed in with your Christianity, then you might be judged along with the empire. So that's really what it's all about. And remember, as a review, an apocalyptic writer in those days, remember, they're black and white people. I mean, that's how they see the world. Apocalyptic speech sees the world black or white. And and what John will say, and this is where we're going to have to wrestle with him, is you are either with Jesus or you are with Caesar. But you cannot have both. You cannot pledge allegiance to both at the same time. It's a radical voice. So let's get into some of the symbols. Now, most of us, when we think of the symbols of Revelation or the images, most of us kind of bring to mind all the judgment symbols, Uh, the wrath, uh, the the locusts, uh, the waters, all this stuff, uh, the the dragons. But what we're going to look at today is really what I will uh, submit to you 
is the, the central image in the book. What John is really trying to hold up for us, and if we miss this, if you fall asleep in this, we, we have it online, you can, read, or you can watch it again, but if you fall asleep here, you, you are liable to misinterpret the rest of the book. And I'm serious, and I hope to make that clear to you. But let's start first. Uh, I, you should have an insert if you can see those. If you have your own Bible, you can bring your own Bible. There is an insert here. Uh, trust me, we're not going to read every single verse you see on both pages. Uh, but I do want to point out a few things, and we're going to be following along here just looking at the text, and that's my goal for these next uh, few weeks. Let's just look at the text. So if you will look at chapter 4, verse 1, uh, this is the, the scene of encouragement. This is the, the encouragement piece. Uh, John says in verse 1, After this I looked, and there in heaven stood a door open, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Now, at once I was in the Spirit. Now, that's John. He's having a vision. He's just having a vision. I was in the Spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne with one seated on the throne. Now, circle or underline the word throne there. That is actually critical. I won't spend much time. The word throne in Revelation occurs more than 20 times. Well, the reason for that is actually kind of simple to understand because in those days, guess who sat on the throne? Guess where the throne was? Anybody want to guess? Roman emperor. Oh, you're getting it already. So he begins there, the throne. So just by mentioning who's going to be seating on the throne, John is kind of subverting (laughs) the Roman culture, which said there's someone who sits on the throne, and it is Caesar. Now, if you'll look down uh, at verse 4. I won't read all that to you, but John says around the throne, he sees 24 other thrones. And seated on the thrones are 24 elders dressed in white robes. We're going to come back to white robes. I should have wore my white robe today that I use in the sanctuary. Uh, And they're uh, with golden crowns on their heads. Now, this is not obvious to you, but there are some historians, uh, Roman historians, who say that what John is describing here with the elders around the one on the throne, this actually would have looked like what people would have seen during public processions of Roman authorities in those days. Or, uh, or even of the Roman emperor. You would have seen him come in. He would have been on kind of a throne. There would have been other elders in robes kind of uh, giving him adulation, so to speak. So again, right, we see John kind of mocking that with thrones and who is around the throne and where are they offering their worship. Remember, Revelation really is a resistance kind of of letter, and he's playing on this. Um, so skip down with me now. We're still in the throne room. We're still in John's vision. In verse 6, he says this. Uh, around the throne, he says there's something like a sea of glass, like crystal, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with a face like a human face, and the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. Goodness gracious, if we take that literally, we're going to run off the deep end. And I've actually seen some artistic renditions of this. Maybe you have too. It looks just outlandish in many ways. Okay, so what, what, is, what is happening here? What is John seeing? Well, we've got to think first century Jewish. In those days, the lion was considered to be the greatest of all the wild animals. Lions kind of considered that today, isn't it? The king of the jungle. 
So the lion was considered to be the, 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 the most majestic of all the wild animals. The ox was considered to be uh, the most majestic of, and the strongest of all the domesticated animals for farmers. The eagle was understood to be the most majestic of all the birds that fly. We still think that way, don't we? And of course, the human, according to Revelation, we're the ones that are put in dominion over all of these creatures. So what's going on here? This is John's shorthand way of seeing as if all of creation is worshiping the one who is sitting on the throne. All the creation is singing the Lord's praises. You will actually see this in some of the Psalms. May all the earth praise the Lord. Sea creatures, praise the Lord. Uh, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And, and, and so this is what John is describing. He is seeing as if all of creation, including the animals of which we're a part to, is offering praise to God. But then in verse 11, here's what they all of creation are singing. Verse 11. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you have created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. Now circle those three words, to receive glory, honor, and power. This should not become a surprise to you now because in the first century in the Roman uh, imperial world, guess who was honored of receiving all glory, honor, and power? the Roman emperor, the Roman dignitaries. Here's the problem. Caesar considered himself to be a god, but John's subverting that. He's just a guy. We do not offer worship to someone who's created. We are to offer our worship to someone who created all things. So here, right, John, in, in, in the scene of worship, he is upholding where true honor, where our true uh, worth should be ascribed, and that is to the one who sits on the throne. So Here's the point that I want to make before we move on. Revelation really is a book of worship. We think it's a book of judgment. No, it's really a book of worship. There's all these magnificent scenes. Were you paying attention when we were singing all these songs? Almost every one of our songs came out of Revelation. If you've ever worshipped in the sanctuary, maybe you have sung, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, Revelation. How many of you have ever heard Handel's Messiah, King of kings, forever, forever, right out of Revelation? And here's the point. John, the writer of this magnificent work, he understands worship to be an act of resistance. The worship of God is a political act. Now, we get bent out of shape when we hear that. But it is because when we gather, John understood when the Christians gather to offer praises to the one who sits on the throne, the true one who sits on the throne, right in that moment, they are being kind of treasonous. They are, they are challenging. They are resisting any speech and any language that would have come from the Roman imperial system. Now, uh, living in the 21st century, we, we kind of want to separate religion and politics. This is just kind of what we do. This is not what people did in the ancient world. Um, what the Romans were really good at doing, and if you read your history, you'll see this, they were so good at blending kind of religious elements like anthems and 
hymns and processions, and usually they were processions of soldiers. They were so good at blending these kinds of religious elements into their politics. And the reason that they did this is because what would happen in public is that people were, would be captivated by that. It would, it would capture their imagination. Um, and, and, and it would make people almost loyal. Like the, like the, the state of Rome is bigger than, than just people. It, it, there's some glory to it. And, and the primary place, the primary site where you would have seen this blend of religious elements and political elements would have been, you ready? At the stadium. The Roman Colosseum. The stadiums. You would gather for the right before the games, and they would you would sing Roman anthems, Roman hymns. There would be processions. It would be all these things. What it would do is it would get into the imagination of the people, and all of a sudden they would be honoring the glory of the Roman state. You would see always a visit from a Roman dignitary most of the time. <laughs> the last service I was saying this, and somebody was doing this. Because you can kind of connect the dots if you're paying attention. So what John is doing right out of the bat here is he's saying to the Christians, look, your anthems, your songs should be going to the one on the throne. Worship, worship the one on the throne. God, do not, do not get called up in the worship of the imperial state. And so what John will have to ask then is, hey, well, what kind of Lord sits on the throne? And that's exactly what he's going to answer for us in chapter 5. Okay, so let's look at chapter 5. All right, so in uh, chapter 5, verse 1, John sees another vision. He sees on the right hand the one seated on the throne. He sees a scroll, and it is a scroll sealed with seven seals. Now, don't let that get you uh, caught up. Uh, In the ancient world, you know, they didn't have letters like we have, but if you had a scroll and you wanted to seal it, you would use a wax seal, Uh, This is still around today. Maybe you've seen that. You know, you would melt wax and you would put a stamp on there and then you would send the scroll to someone to whom it's written and then they would, you know, break the seal. And if the seal was broken, you know, the letter has been read. It could be classified documents. Okay, so John sees this person. Uh, He sees a scroll sealed with seven seals. And then an angel asks him, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And then John realizes nobody is. And then he begins to weep. And then an angel says to him, he says, do not weep. See, this is in verse 5, see the lion of the tribe of Judah. Circle that phrase, lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So this scroll here seems to hold the contents of what is to come. It's almost like uh, this scroll uh, contains the outlines of, of history. But what I want us to consider for just a moment is that phrase, that image of the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is really important. Uh, the lion of the tribe of Judah, this in the ancient world was a messianic symbol. It was a messianic of the Messiah, a messianic symbol, and it was a symbol of the expectation of what the Messiah would be and how he would rule. He would kind of rule like King David. Now you think about a lion. A lion is, I don't know, a lion is fierce. Uh, a lion is powerful. 
Uh, a lion is dominating. It, it, is, it is a predator. Right? That's what a lion is. It's at the top of the, of the food chain in the jungle. Right? Uh, so that's who the lion is. And so the expectation of the Messiah in many respects was that the Messiah would be fierce. The Messiah would be dominating. The Messiah would be almost like a predator. He would be a conqueror, and he would especially come as a conqueror through military force. He would be like a lion. And so there was an expectation that we would see the lion of the tribe of Judah come. He would, he would call together an army of his people. They would then lead a revolt against the forces of evil. They would defeat the forces of evil by force, and then the Messiah would assume his place on the throne where he would rule all the nations of the world. So that's what the lion means, fierce, dominating. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's the first thing. Now, let's hold to this image of the, the strong, conquering military Messiah and I want us to kind of skip to another part of the book of Revelation. I, if you've got your insert, you'll, I want you to follow with me. If you have your Bible, we're going to turn to chapter 7. And we're going to look uh, at verse, <clears throat> really through 5 through 8. But it's chapter, uh, verse 4. John hears uh, a number of those who were sealed. How many? 144,000. Sealed out of every tribe of the people of Israel. Then he goes on, you know, from the tribe of Judah, 12,000. From this tribe, 12,000. Okay. The number 12, just like the number 7 means completeness or completion. Number 12 actually means something in apocalyptic writing in Judaism. 12 represents the people of God. 12 tribes of Israel. How many disciples did Jesus have? He had 12, the people of God. Now, what John is doing is he's taking 12 and he's multiplying it by 12,000. So... What he's saying is he's seeing an image of all the people of God. This is, this is not a code, okay? But what I want you to understand is that notice that there's a counting going on. 12,000 from each tribe, okay? Now, there are some people, some Christians who believe, and maybe, you, maybe you've heard this, is that what that 144,000 means is that that's only the people who are going to be saved. Which, if that's true, we're doomed, because there have been billions of Christians to live. The odds are not good that you'll be counted among them. Oh, I want to be in that number. You know, and, and they really, this, this is for some, this is a big deal. But I want you to understand that there's a counting going on. There is a census going on. Now, John is Jewish. His scriptures are the Old Testament. And when a census happens in the Old Testament. It is accounting for an army. The 144,000, in other words, it's an army. It's an army of the people of God who are going to march in step with the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's all it is. It's an army. It's a census of all the people of God. Now, What John does at this moment is he shatters our expectations. Now, to get this, we've got to go jump back to chapter 5. So look with me back at chapter 5. Are you following me? Are you? Okay. We just got to get these symbols uh, uh, to understand this. Okay, so let's go back 
uh, to chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verse 6. So John has heard a voice in heaven saying, the lion of the tribe of Jesus. Jesus, that's what he's heard, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's heard that. But then he turns, John does in verse 6, to see who's on the throne. And what does he say in verse 6? Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures, all of creation, and among the elders, a what? Lamb. Standing. And it's not just any lamb. It's a lamb as if it had been slaughtered. Now, the Greek word John uses for slaughter would actually best be translated murdered, not just sacrificed. Now, clearly, he's thinking of the Passover lamb in the book of Exodus. But, but I want to... St- he hears he's the lion, the tribe of Judah, the fierce one, the dominating one. John looks to see a lamb as if it was slain. That's who's actually sitting on the throne. And if we don't get this... If we don't understand who Jesus is here, we will misinterpret the rest of the book. I've got an uh, image on the front of your worship bulletin if you picked one up. Also, I don't know if uh, Tim was able to upload it, but we'll, we'll take a look at a powerful uh, image that comes out of uh, yeah, about the 1600s. Look at that. That's what John sees. Do you see ferociousness there? Do you see domination the way we understand it? We do not. So what John is doing is he's capturing our imagination that the one who sits on the throne does not rule through military might. That's what emperors do. This is a God, a Lord, a Caesar, if you will, who rules not in shedding the blood of others. That's what armies do. But who himself had his own blood shed. And that's how he got the victory. John, in this moment, I could look at that all day, but John, in this moment, overturns our expectations of how we think God rules. Caesar ruled through militant force. Jesus rules through militant love. Militant suffering. Militant nonviolence. We have got to understand that this is the Jesus we will meet throughout the book of Revelation. He's not just a lamb. He's bleeding. He's slaughtered. He's weak. He's vulnerable. This is not the expectation of the lion that we had in mind at all. Now, to kind of underscore this where we get misinterpretations, um, my apologies to you. I, I did not, may, well, maybe I did put this on the slide, but it's going to come from chapter 19, verse 11. Uh, If you have your Bible, you can turn with me. We won't stay here long. If you don't have it, uh, I will just read this out loud to you. Uh, If you do find it um, um, on your slides, you can put that up there. But in in chapter 19, uh, John sees a vision, and it's a battle that's about to take place. And he sees one coming on a white horse. And uh, it's clearly a reference to Jesus. Is that it? Yes, the white horse. Thank you for that. Um, And if you look in verse 13, this is how this mighty conqueror is dressed. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Next slide, if it's there. From his mouth 
comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Now that sounds pretty fierce. But let's slow down for a minute, and I want you to notice two things about that passage, and I think this is so critical. Number one, you will notice that the one who comes here, and this is Jesus. This is actually the scene of the Battle of Armageddon, um, which a battle that never happens, by the way. Just so you know, if you read the rest of it, like, there's no battle. But here he comes, and he's wearing a robe, and it's dipped in blood. But here's what you need to understand. It's not the blood of those whom he has conquered. Whose blood is it? It's his own blood. You see the outlandishness of that? He's coming with a, a, a blood-drenched robe. And he does have a sword. But it's not a sword of the hand. It's a sword of what? The mouth. Now, in the New Testament, the word of God is often interpreted or understood to be like a sword. Paul, in a couple places, says, Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. In other words, this is the word of truth. Jesus comes riding in victory to defeat the forces of evil through his suffering and through his truth. In no place in Revelation does Jesus ever resort to violence of any sort. In no place in Revelation does Jesus ever have a sword in his hand. It's always the sword of his mouth, the sword of truth, the sword of his witness. And that's how he conquered Remember, on Good Friday, he was conquered by the Roman Empire, but he rose. His blood was shed, but he rose in triumph. Jesus conquers through nonviolence in Revelation and through non-retaliation, through suffering, and through his truth. Now, remember, we talked about the army. 144 is an army. So now we need to ask, what kind of army is it? This is important as well. Now, let's jump back. I'll be done at this point. Uh, Some musicians, get ready. Um, Now, we've established that the 144,000, they're they're, they're an army. That's all this means. It's a census that's going on. Uh, You will also, if you read the rest of it, this is a footnote. I don't want to get too convoluted. Uh, This 144,000, there's a place where it says, and they did not lie with uh, women in relations. And some people get really upset about that. But in the Old Testament, you weren't really allowed to engage in the in marital relations in battle so that's what that'll mean if you come across that so we're dealing with an army but what kind of army is this well if you look in chapter uh, excuse me verse 13 one of the elders in john's vision asked the same thing says who are these robed in white where have they come from and i said to them sir you're the one that knows (laughs) i don't know you know and then he said this these are they who have come out of the great ordeal Now, some of your translations will have, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. You ever heard that? They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Two things. Some people interpret coming out of the great tribulation or coming out of the great ordeal as meaning being rescued from or being raptured from so it doesn't happen. That's not what's going on here in the context. The 144,000, this army, the elder is saying that they are the ones who actually suffered through it. But now, because of their suffering, their robes have been washed in blood. And the blood of the lamb 
And what that means is that the white robes in Revelation are always washed red, and the red becomes white. Here's the point. This army of the 144,000 is an army of martyrs. It's an army of those who lost their life by maintaining their allegiance to Jesus. And because they were willing to lose their life, now they are a part of the army of God's faithful witnesses. Because now they have defeated evil. And they're sharing in Jesus' defeat of evil. The saints, whenever you see white robes and people dressed in white robes, they're martyrs. Just as Jesus' robe is white through the shedding of his blood. They are, they are the army of those who shed their blood in nonviolent resistance to the Roman imperial system. That's enough for today. But we have to understand who the Lamb is. That's who Jesus is. Now, I will uh, hold up for this to you um, as the musicians are coming forward. I think John would leave us with some questions now that we put all this in mind, and, and I, I kind of wrote these down, but based on John's writing, I think he would want us to meditate on this, and it's these questions. What form of power has captured your imagination? What form of power captures your imagination? The power on display with Caesar's empire, his armies, his processions, his firepower, or the power of a slaughtered lamb and his army of suffering saints? Are you more captivated by the armies of violence or the armies of nonviolence? The sword in the hand or the sword in the mouth? How you and I answer that question determines where we think true power lies and where it lies. Let us pray. Well, gracious and loving God, to you belongs all power, all glory, all honor. And all of us have been captivated by other forms of power. We like lions. We like lion kings, not lamb kings. I pray that we, your people, will see this worship as an act of resistance. All those forces vying for our allegiance that want us to chart another way. And I pray that we will be captivated by the power and violence of love. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Join us next week for part four of Pastor Shane's series on Revelation. For more information on what's going on at Harrison and how you can get involved, you can visit us online at harrisonchurch.org.